Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly live stream and podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, coming to you straight from the playground for men and women in plaid. If you're listening to the live stream video version of this week's broadcast, you're actually watching a pre-recorded episode. Because right now, as you listen to Fine Woodworking in your ear holes, I'm actually swishing around the snowy slopes of Vail, Colorado. And not how thinking, do you what? afford to go to Vail, Colorado and swish around on a journalist's salary? I've I married, never been yeah. to Vail. I married well, Asa. <laughs> you married and why, a rich And chick. why aren't you talking in your normal voice, which is more like this? Hello, I'm Ed Pernick. <laughs> <laughs> we, we went through that before Ed falls into his Telemundo yes. Univision. Bienvenidos a Chop Talk Live, el podcast y live stream de la revista Fine Woodworking. All right, all right. Um, but anyhow, just, I just wanted to clarify that we're, not, uh, we're actually not live today, so there's only going to be the pre-recorded stuff. Um, but anyhow, anyhow, now back to business. Uh, this week on Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking editor Asa Christiana is joined by senior editor Matt Kenny, who is adept at making fun of me. Um, it's and, super difficult. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. So what's going on today? What's going on is that you were telling me um, that you visited the Nakashima compound over the weekend, which I was really excited to hear because that was one. George Nakashima is probably the guy that the word um, woodworker, I think he sort of coined the phrase, this modern idea of woodworker. And if you haven't, not to get too boring and into a rabbit, down a rabbit hole, but um, the way furniture was made was one way in the period furniture age, and then it got very industrialized. And then this modern idea of a woodworker who envisions custom pieces and makes them the way we all just take for granted today is actually a pretty recent invention. And Nakashima was one of the first guys to have that complete vision of design and craftsmanship and solid wood and all the things we take for granted. Anyway, his compound is incredible. He's passed away years ago, but his daughter... It's kind of a beautiful thing. His daughter, Mira Nakashima, runs the compound today, and um, it's one of the most inspiring places it's, I've ever visited, and I was really happy to hear that you had gone there, Ed. It's super cool. It's off, uh, it's off of a little country road named Aquatong Road in New Hope, Pennsylvania. New Hope. I love that name for the town. It's like perfect name for uh, the Nakashima compound. Which I once read... Um, I read once that he was attracted to New Hope. I don't know if this is true. In fact, I, I suspect it's not. But I once read that after he was released from the Japanese-American internment camp out west at the conclusion of the Second World War, he was attracted to New Hope because of the name. It sounds um, like the kind of place you would move. Like, I would move after all my old hopes have been beaten down. Well, and they, then I would go they already to, are, man. You would go to New Hope? So I'll be leaving <laughs> immediately after but this. this. <laughs> but the, the whole thing that sparked all of this, um, I, I decided to go because I, hadn't, I, I grew up in New Hope. And um, we went to church with the Nakashimas. And Mr. Nakashima and his son Kevin used to sit in the pew across from us. And at the time, I was like 12. I was 13 when he died. I didn't even know that, that you had the family connection. You, well, not with Mira. I only knew Mr. Nakashima and But still, you grew up in Kevin. that area. That was, that's cool. But they had... Um, I knew that uh, George had redone the interior of the church in 1960, and he built the altar and the pews and all the radiator covers, everything. It was all... It was a very... Asian type of church. It's named St. Martin of Tours. And the original church actually is no longer used, and they moved to a new church, at which time I heard a lot of the Nakashima pews were auctioned off. Um, the light fixtures that he designed that were in the original church that I remember as a kid were actually thrown in a dumpster. 
Um, so I heard did you that. really appreciate all this when you were a kid? I didn't get it. I, I just didn't have any concept. It was only in later years that I realized. It's funny wow. how before you're initiated into woodworking, you don't see the world the same way. And after you are, all of a sudden now I watch movies and I see the furniture and you just see design in a different way. But anyway, you were sitting in the church Nakashima designed and had no concept of what that meant. What I love about his furniture, and everybody should read George's book, The Soul of a Tree, I think yeah. is the first one, and then Mira has a book with reflections on her life, and they're both coffee table type books. They're both awesome. Oh my God, <laughs> full of um, amazing family photography, beautiful studio shots of his studios, his work, everything. But what's great about his stuff is it doesn't, it mostly does not look dated. It's like that Asian contemporary organic style still looks fresh and there's a ton of people still doing Nakashima style furniture today for that reason I built my dining table in the exact style of his stuff with the with the live edges and the open gap down the center and the yep. butterfly keys um, is the compound as sort of romantic and gorgeous and inspiring as it was when I was I'll, there? I'll put it to you this way. So I, I decided to go a couple weekends ago. I was visiting my parents, and I drove over there with my wife, and we walked into the Conoid studio, which is where Mr. Nakashima did most of his work, right, his design work, and sitting in the middle of the studio in front of this huge arched window, like one whole facade of the building just looks out on the woods, and it's bathed in light because I think it's probably south-facing, I'm guessing. Um, so Kevin was sitting, Kevin Nakashima was sitting there just kind of taking in the view. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, man, this is the perfect place to be because it's so quiet because the, the roof is, the ceiling is all sprayed with the cellulose insulation that absorbs sound. Yeah. So you can hear a pin drop in there. And he's got like Zen ponds and gardens yeah. and their hot, their residences are all done in the Japanese style. And, um, the one great travel tip for people if you want to get inspired about woodworking and get to the heart and soul of woodworking is go down to New Hope, Pennsylvania on a Saturday. They're only open one Saturday a month for guided tours, but for you can come tours. any Saturday. Right, you can come any Saturday 1 to 4.30. 1 to 4, um, well, 4.30. Go to New Hope, and then a drive away is Wharton Escherich's house. Wharton Escherich? Wharton Escherich? Uh, Wharton Escherich. Yes. Uh, mm. it's, and this guy was another amazing... Um, founding father of modern woodworking. Right, he was one of the first ones, even before Nakashima, yeah. uh, very early in the 20th century. But there's this incredible continuum between these two guys in the sense that their woodworking does not leave off their inquisitiveness, their woodworking, their artistry, their engineering mind. It doesn't leave off at furniture. At, you know, Wharton Eshrick, uh built his house, uh, one ho his studios out of concrete. He figured out this cool way to like dovetail the corners and color the concrete. His house is like this big crazy quilt of, you know, woolly mammoth tusks that he found and turned into a stair rail. And um, he, they, both of these guys, and I've taken this, you know, I guess it resonated with me is this idea that you build your whole entire world. He built his life. Yeah, your yes. life, your world, everything around you. It's the same with Sam Maloof. Um, Wharton Escherich, you know, these guys, it's in every door fixture, and they didn't stop. They're not going to go into Home Depot and stick a piece of that yeah. in the middle of their world. Their world is handcrafted. Nakash just to go back to Nakashima for a second, this guy was an amazing engineer, a Japanese guy who was both an artist and an engineer, and his engineering, he was really interested in concrete, so he did these cool, he 
he, he invented kind of a new kind of a, build, a new kind of a building, I think, where it's modeled after the shell, the structure of a shell in the ocean, where you could have super thin concrete, like two inches thin, but because arch. you build it in a parabolic yeah. arch, it's self-supporting. And so you have these incredible shapes that are his studios. You know, aside from the furniture, there's all this engineering in the place, and then the traditional Japanese. And all the studios are separate buildings, which forces you, as you're working throughout the day, you have to you have to go outside into nature to get from the main studio over to the chair studio, over to the conoid studio, whatever it is. It's everything is it forces you to go outside and interact and and get a fresh breath of air. It's just awesome. What I've what I've just to wrap it up. What I've taken away from that from those experiences is. I did all the trim in my house. I did the floors in my house. I did a custom deck that you can't find anywhere else. I think that all of that stuff is part of my woodworking. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's yeah. I don't really see it leaving off. And I was inspired by those guys. My next house is going to have a tree up through the middle of it or something. I'm just going to go nuts. It's also the only compound in the United States where you don't have to worry about the ATF showing up yes. unannounced. Why is that? Well, because all the other compounds, anytime you say compound, oh right, 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 exactly. (laughs) Waco and usually when you say I visited a compound, they ask you when were you deprogrammed by the from the cult, right? (laughs) Yes. And usually no one says I just visited a compound because if they visited the compound, they're still in the compound and haven't been released. Uh Correct. It's all secretive. Yeah. If George Nakashima had had a cult, I would have been glad to have become a member. (laughs) So there's no stockpiles of AK-47s or anything. That's good. Yeah. Uh, lots of dovetail sauce. Yes. Um, well, anyhow, let's, uh, let's take a, a question. So Bernie Kopfer, uh, this might be right up Matt's alley. He wrote in, I would like to see a method for making a shooting board with a ramped plane guide board and to hear the opinions of a fixed fence versus a movable or adjustable fence. Mm. So a ramped shooting board, I've made one before and uh, I've done used... a ton of shooting boards. Yeah, a lot of shooting boards. I've made a ramped shooting board. I currently have one in my shop that I'm testing uh, and I would say don't. Uh, don't do it. It's not necessary. Um, the two supposed advantages of a, of, of a ramped shooting board are that, um, that uh, you get, supposedly get a shear cut because the workpiece is at an angle to the blade, and also supposedly you're using more of the blade, and so... Uh, you're, you're dulling more of it, so when you go back to sharpening it, it's easier. So you're distributing the wear along the whole yeah. width of the blade. Supposedly. Yeah. But the thing is, the, the ramp is so slight that you're really only using maybe an extra eighth of an inch of the blade. Uh, what I do for that problem... And there's a bunch of extra work involved in making yeah, a ramp shooting exactly. board. So is it worth it? It's not worth it. And what I do to use more of the blade up is I actually shim my work pieces as, you know, so... If the blade that I'm, part of the blade I'm using starts to get dull, I'll just put a quarter inch thick shim underneath it and raise the workpiece up to another part of the blade. And I use a lot more of the blade that way than with a ramped shooting board. And then the shear cut action, I think, is overblown. It's unnecessary. If you've got a sharp blade, then you're going to get a really nice clean cut. So why ramp it? It's just totally this unnecessary. falls into that category of diminishing returns exactly. you know, on jigs. You see, we see this a lot in the magazine where people are try, attempting to build the perfect jig that will handle every possible eventuality when actually there's usually a low-tech 
fix, like shimming out one side with paper or... Yeah, but that doesn't fulfill the obsessive-compulsive aspect well, of most woodworkers' personality. Well, <laughs> that's true. If you're the person who loves jig-making, then rock on. But I want to get on with building stuff. Right. And yeah. the people that, just from visiting a ton of shops and being lucky enough to work at this magazine, you start to see that the people that are the most productive do not overbuild their jigs. Yes. What, uh, about, uh, the, what about the adjustable fence? What's the point of that? Uh, well, I have an adjustable fence on mine, and uh, I would, I'm all for it. And the reason why is that it's very difficult to get that fence secured to the base, square to the cutting runway. You have one right, right on the uh, bench top uh, yeah. over there, I think. For I can show you how I did it. Or for those folks watching the yeah. video. Yeah, and, and in the meantime, how I'll I did sing it. a song to <laughs> fill the time. They so often serenades over. me while I'm at work. Yes. It's very uh, uncomfortable, by the way. So it, it's difficult to get it to be square to the cutting runway. And I made a lot that way. And they always ended up out of square or they, or they warped afterwards and you couldn't do anything about it, so you throw the whole thing away. So what I ended up doing was... Just tilt it up a little bit. Uh, sure. It was putting a pivot at the business end, the end by the cutting runway. And that pivot is basically a steel pin that goes into a brass bushing in the uh, base of the, of the shooting board. And at the other end is an oversized hole in the fence that fits over a bolt. And what that allows me to do is put the fence on there and adjust it square, then lock it down. Okay. And it never moves on me. And that's all you need is you need it to be square. I can always adjust it square. I can replace the fence if it gets damaged. And so I would definitely do an adjustable fence. I'm a big... Um, believer in doing a lot of fences that way, leave a little wiggle room in them and some kind of a bolt system like the fence on your crosscut sled. It's so hard to nail that first time out, literally nail it, but to just nail that 90 exactly first time out and have it stay that way forever. And almost every crosscut sled that I ever did that way with a fixed glued down fence, I end up having to shim it out with paper or write pencil arrows on there like this is the good side, this is the bad side or whatever. It's just so much easier to build a little play in there and some kind of a bolt or a knob that right. lets you rejigger it. Yeah. It takes all the pressure off of you to make the perfect jig again. Well, on the shooting board, I think the key is to have that fixed pivot at the business end because that's going to keep it from moving in use and just have the adjustability at the far end. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. Any jigs need to be somewhat adjustable. The fixed pivot. Yes. A fixed pivot. Okay. Ed, I'm disappointed boring. you haven't played a boring or a wrap it up. Or boring. A... I, just, I actually just did when he was talking about his fixed pivots. Oh, sorry, I couldn't <laughs> hear it. Uh, well, let's, listen, let's move on to the next question. And this one uh, comes from Terry Lyon, and it concerns the recent video workshop on dovetail techniques. And he says that uh, in the series, Stephen Hammer uses a special table saw blade that's ground to a 9.5 degree angle for cutting pins. And he wants to know, does he start... Does he need to start with a flat top grind blade, uh, a la a rip blade? Um, what's the best blade to use for this, to have it you know, ground to that angle? The answer is it doesn't really matter because you, you just need to have, if you picture, I'm just going to go over to the board and draw for a second, but if you picture that the tip of the blade, what, what's really cool here is you tip the blade and it's something like that, and, uh, and here's your workpiece. And then if you did the same thing in the other direction with the saw blade, um, you, what it does is it, it, cuts, uh, it cuts out between the tails. And 
it, um, and it leaves no waste in the corners. So you just take any typical saw blade and you send it out. Forrest will do it for you. There's some other people that are, do it. Your local sharpening shop will do it. And you figure out what dovetail angle you like to cut at. And then you have the tips. You have a dedicated blade. Just buy a cheap blade, like a $40 blade. Any $40 blade will do. The key is that nothing... You can have those ATB blades where some of the teeth are pointy on the outside and there's like a rake or tooth down the middle. It doesn't matter. They're going to grind away everything that's not at that nine and a half degrees or whatever. If not every tooth gets all the way up to the full bevel angle, that's fine. So it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, in a perfect world, you'd get a flat top grind blade and every single tooth would be ground exactly to nine and a half degrees. And that's fine. You'd get slightly better results with that. But it's such a tiny amount of wood you're removing that I don't think it really matters. I love that this guy who gives us a hard time about our hand tools is recommending you go out and buy this special little table <laughs> saw blade so you can cut dovetails. Hey, I'm still precious about stuff. I'm just precious about power tools. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Added it up. Added it up. $40. Well, plus the regrind. Put that on my tab. 20 30 bucks for the regrind. All right. We're up to 70 bucks. You might as well we just should, get over a dovetail the course of this saw. year, as we talk about tools, we should keep a running tab. Ed, go ahead, hit yeah. it again. Oh, I'm sorry. We okay, should yeah. keep a running Ready? tab of, uh, of everything we've talked about and then see who, whose wife is the most pissed off at the end of the year. Okay. <laughs> or not. <laughs> I don't think we need to make, bring anything you know, to the knowledge of our wives. Right. It right. doesn't sound like a good idea. It's like rubbing salt in. Well, way. right. Your wives will be able to take care of you with the sound drop I have for our first segment, and that is pins versus tails. Um, that's our crossfire segment here on Shop Talk Live. And um, we, uh, I've actually had to get to work designing a, a workbench for a video workshop that's coming up soon. And that opened up a rousing uh, debate over workbench joinery. You two gentlemen come down on two sides of the argument. I'd love to do this like the McLaughlin group on PBS and have you both wearing plaid jackets. We don't have plaid jackets, only plaid shirts, um, which neither of you are wearing today. I do not wear plaid. You don't? No. I love plaid. I've got a plaid-ish shirt on, but, but I was uncool for like 20 years with my flannel shirts, and then all of a sudden... Flannel shirts got cool again. And now, young guys are even wearing beards all over the place, which I love. They don't know how to turn a screwdriver, but they've all got beards. By which you mean they wear beards like at the grocery store, at the bar, not all over the place, like their arms and their legs. They wear beards in the beard area. In the the beard area? (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, um, so what's, what's the deal? Asa, you come down on the idea that it's okay to use mechanical fasteners and dowels. I think it's one of those... Disagreements probably where there's something to be said on either side, but let's pretend we're really pissed off about it, and, uh, right. and that I think you're an ignoramus. Wrong, sir. Wrong. <laughs> Next question. Yes, <laughs> Jack Germain. Um, anyway, uh, I'm more on the side of what are you asking? In my shop, in the way I work, I don't want to overbuild jigs. I don't want to <clears> overbuild tools. My shop is a tool, and so I don't glorify. I don't glorify the shop in that sense that I try to make my shop as beautiful as the furniture. I think that's ridiculous, basically. Myself, even though I know a lot of readers, it's like it's their man cave and they want it to be as zen-like as their furniture. But for me, um, my shop is a tool and I love it being that way. It is romantic to me that it's just built up enough 
for what I need it to do. So I don't need this amazing tool chest that is a pain in the neck to use and get tools in and out of. For the same reason I don't overbuild workbench bases. I think like for example, um, the first one I built, one of the, I've got a couple, but one workbench that I have has got um, a fur base. And it's great. I used, first of all, Douglas fur. You can get it already dimensioned. Four by fours and two by sixes is what it's made of. And I just ran long all thread all the way down inside the stretchers through a little dado. And then it pops out at the end through the four by four legs. And there's bolts there. And it's all held together with these long four foot all thread mm -hmm. bolts. And it's super rigid. You could chuck it off the roof. And if it ever gets wobbly, I just sock down the bolts a couple turns. And it's great. I don't need to stare lovingly at the base of my bench. Also, people say, well, is there enough mass? There's plenty of mass because I dropped a tool uh, case, a, uh, what do you call it? What, what word am I looking for? Tool chest. A tool chest or a tool cabinet. Just a, a stack of drawers the under there. The kind that it's a pain in the neck to no, reach simple, down and no. get your tools these out are, of. These are, these are great because the drawers actually open up and actually you can rest boards on them when you're planing mm -hmm. them on edge. But anyway, um, there's that. And then the top is maple. The top is thick maple with thick aprons. I have all the weight I could ever want and all the rigidity and all the mass. But you come down on the, a little bit on the other side on this issue. Yeah, well, my bench does have uh, stub tenons and knockdown bolts. Aha. Um, uh -huh. But uh -huh. but if I remember correctly, I was in some way herded into that joint uh -huh. by me by you oh. <laughs> <laughs> when I made my and now monster you regret it a little bit. I don't regret it, but I I certainly would have made the base differently myself. I would have used uh, full tenons. Yeah. Uh, I would have used full tenons, and uh, it may not be necessary for strength, but for a lot of guys uh, who are hobbyist woodworkers, the majority of woodworkers nowadays are hobbyists, um, what they're doing is uh, they want their bench to be an expression of their craftsmanship. So it's not a matter of utility. It's a matter of demonstrating to themselves and also to the theoretical person who might occasionally visit their, their shop that yeah. this is the kind of work I'm capable of. And so it's more of an issue of uh, demonstrating to themselves what they're capable of accomplishing. And so in that way, I, th I think that you know, through you know, full mortises on the bench base are great. Uh, and it's also a way to develop your skills as yeah. a woodworker. And I get that. I totally get that. It'd be, it's nice. The more beautiful things you have in your shop, it probably inspires you. You know, I have a casement window at the back that lets me look out at the woods. And, you know, so I'm all about getting inspired while I'm out there. But I kind of save my finest work for the furniture. That's where most people see my work is when they come in the house or I give something to family or friends or whatever. And um, I, maybe I'm just a jerk. I don't really let people in my shop very often. That's my space, man. Yeah. Not letting people in there. Well, I mean, I think you can make a, uh, you can make a mortise and tenon joint very quickly. You know, it's with, a, true. with a data set and a mortiser and put it together. It's and true. it's not like it's a, a, a fancy dancy fox wedge tenon or something. You yeah. Know? It's just. It is uh, pretty. So, man, was that a heated debate or what? Yeah. <laughs> You're wrong. <laughs> that was intense. The next fur question. was flying on that one. Um, well, I, our next question, uh, actually, our next two questions are finishing related. And uh, the first one is, uh, comes from Grant Morin. Grant writes I just purchased some trans tint dark vintage. Golden brown, you got a bunch of dye. I understand the steps to take uh, for finishing tiger maple. Is there any 
trick to making the figure pop. I'd like to keep the background light and pop the stripes out. Any help? I would be grateful. Thank you, Grant. Well, the moment, the moment you mentioned trans tint dye and uh, uh, stains and all this stuff, I, I know right away that we're out of our depth a little bit. So we're going to have to bring in our, our uh, managing editor, Mark Schofield, for this one. Uh, he's been doing the finishing beat for years and years, and we always go to him when, uh, when we have intense finishing questions. And how do I describe Mark? Well, he's British, if you know what I mean. Hello, governor. <laughs> Hello, squaw. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. I'm sorry, Mark. Every time, I'm turning red now, because anytime I, I do anything goofy with Mark, I have to play Rule Britannia. I, I, I know it's probably mildly offensive. Pavlov's dog or something. He's been, he's been in the States for a while, so we've gotten some of the starch out of him at this point. He's not going to eat his Snickers bar with a knife and fork. You can just, yeah, hold it in your hand or whatever. We're talking about the microphone. Okay, so, um, so popping the figure in tiger maple with dyes. How do you do that? Right. Well, um, you know, I know most woodworkers have this phobia against dye any wood, but I think tiger maple is an exception that most people will recognize. You know, you can just put a clear finish on, but, you know, it's nice, but yeah, kind of ho-hum. Or you can put a dye on it, which really pops the figure, makes it almost three-dimensional. This is just using one, one coat of dye, and, uh, you know, with transcripts, which is a dye concentrate, you can either mix it with water. The uh, recommended ratio is uh, one ounce of uh, dye to one quart of water. So that's a water-based one, not an alcohol-based. Well, you can do it either. Um, mm -hmm. you, it's, you know, unlike a, uh, a dye powder, which is um, either water-soluble or alcohol-soluble, mm -hmm. uh, trans-tints actually can be used with either. And there's advantages of both. Mm -hmm. um, with water, uh, it takes longer to dry, but there's less risk of streaking. Mm -hmm. And uh, isn't it a little more light fast as well? Uh, I don't think it makes a difference with okay. the trans tints. Okay. Um, but the other thing that you will get is uh, raised grain, so you have to you know, raise the grain first, sand right. it, and then put the water-based dye on. Or you, if you mix it with alcohol, um, it dries faster, you don't get the grain raised, but because it's drying faster, you've got to be a little more careful not to get streaking when you apply it. Do you see Matt sitting just outside the window looking in like a, he wishes he could get Looking into the, the workshop? Yeah, uh, I, I have a question, though. Do you, seal, do you seal the wood with shellac first, with no, a thinned-out shellac? No. no. Um, the whole point is with uh, tiger maple, you've got the end grain coming to the surface, which right. you know, gives the figure. So you want the dye to penetrate as okay. deeply as possible. And it catches the end grain differently than it catches the face grain, and that's where you get the dark light stripes, right, isn't that right? Right, um, I mean, there's one more trick if you really want to pop the figure. Right. What you can do is you that. can put a, a really dark dye on first, let it soak into the end grain, and then you sand it. And what you're doing is you're sanding it off the, the uh, face grain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you leave a sort of zebra stripe effect, and then you put on like a... a dark yellow or a light brown across the whole surface to give it that uh, more contrast. If you're appearance. watching the video feed, you can see that this is, it's really, really uh, strikingly striped, but you might not want that on every piece of furniture. It's a little loud. So. It's, it, it's, it's a little uh, over the top. But, but uh, it, but it know, could for, be right for, for, the, for a small piece or for mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a section of a furniture, maybe a drawer face on a small table. Matt only really builds tiny boxes anyway, so it would be perfect for him. With tiny tools. Yeah. All right, well, 
That works for we me. We got something um, else. We got Mark here. I do have another finishing-related question. <laughs> Not so fast, <laughs> buddy. Um, Mark loves to work. It's very hard to pull him away. That's not even a joke. It's very hard to pull him away from his desk. Uh, This comes from Kent Patton, and Kent writes, is there an easy way to remove a lacquer finish from kitchen cabinets? So when we got this question, I followed up with Kent uh, for some more information, and he wrote back. um, He said, uh, the existing lacquer finish has become streaked, blotchy, and thinned on the lower base cabinets in the damp areas of the kitchen. Upper cabinets appear to be okay, uniform in color, but slightly yellowed due to age and time. Um, He imagines he would probably have to remove the existing lacquer finish, try to stain the wood to match the color of the upper cabinets, and then overcoat everything with a new polyurethane finish on both the base and uppers. Um, So what basically, it sounds like he wants to keep a natural finish of some sort. He's not going to paint them. The first thing I thought when I heard this was, and this was, you're probably about to tell me that this was stupid, but uh, the first thing I thought was, no, no. The first thing I thought was, well, I know that shellac and lacquer both get dissol- can be redissolved at any time with their own solvent. That's what's unique about them versus polyurethane. Once it catalyzes, it's, it's a plastic and there's no redissolving it. So I thought, can't you just take lacquer thinner and sort of paint it on and redissolve the finish? Well... And get a big I think that would be mask. a very, very slow process if you're trying to do a whole bunch of kitchen cabinets getting all the lacquer off down to bare wood so you can you know, treat the wood. Would I be there for weeks? I think you'd be there for weeks. You'd probably be overcome by the alcohol fumes long before you get the... Uh, would you get cabinet. high from the fumes? Absolutely. Maybe? All right, well, yeah, absolutely. that's a plus. <laughs> or you'd blow up. Yeah. Um, the Taunton Press does not endorse this sort of thing. <laughs> um, I, I think you know, before you go to all that work... Um, it's, it's a good thing just to check and see how bad the finish is. And the, the first thing to do is basically wipe the cabinets with mineral spirits to get all the dirt and all the grease off. And then you can evaluate just you know, how bad is the finish. It may be that some of that streaking is just dirt. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it looks okay, then what you do is you get rid of the remnants of mineral spirits by washing the cabinets with some soaping hot soapy water. And then what I'd recommend is just lightly sanding the wood right. with like a 600-grit sandpaper just to scuff it, just to get mm-hmm. rid of any you know, dings and nicks. And then I'd just put on some more lacquer. Mm-hmm. Um, Couldn't you... I mean, lacquer's a great sealer. Uh-huh. Couldn't you put on almost any finish at that point? It's... Well... Other than something that... I mean, something that doesn't have lacquer as a solvent. For example, when I did the floors in my house, yeah. the first coat they have you put down underneath polyurethane is a, is a, is a sealer that's lacquer-based. Oh, so they bond to one another. They do yeah, bond. Yeah, I think lacquer bonds to a lot. Could you, you get away you with... Probably, I mean, if you could, I guess if you wanted... You know, if you didn't want the strong fumes of the lacquer, um, yeah. you could go with a water-based finish. Um, and what you could do is, if you're trying to match that finish with the color of the higher cabinets... Um, just use um, something like a dye tint the lacquer, tint the well, tint the water base there finish. Yeah, sorry. Just to warm it up, and you know, obviously, you want to experiment maybe on the inside of uh, one of the ca- lower cabinet doors until you get the right uh, concentration. But he does have. It sounds like he has moisture damage at the bottoms of the base cabinets, and that's a whole other nut to crack. And I at mean, that if, point, you know, if the finish is totally gone, then you're going to have to strip it. And what I would do is I would just take the doors off and I would find a commercial stripper yeah. and just say, take it down to bare wood. Invite her over, and then what? do what after that? Yes, yes. What I would do is step one, uh, remove the cabinets. Step two, 
Go and find, find new cabinets. Stripper, Step three, install new cabinets. No! Yeah, especially, I mean, if you have water damage, at some point, again, you're in the diminishing returns area here. If you have water damage, that wood's got to come out if it's water damaged. If the wood itself has started warping or right. going dark or whatever, yeah, I mean... You're you done. Know, just, just buy some new uh, cabinet uh, doors. It's, and there's uh, some finishes, though, that you wouldn't want to put over the lacquer. Like shellac is probably not a great. You know, Shellac's probably not a good finish for uh, kitchen cabinets. It's, it's not, high moisture. It, it doesn't really stand up to heat and moisture very right, well. Right. Okay. Great. Would you play Mark? Is that it for Mark? Um, that is. That's it for Mark. That's really all Could we need. I have actually some music. That, do you really? I, I do have something specially, especially for Mark. That'd be As great. he walks off now. Yeah, he's gonna. It's love coming. This. Just give it a moment. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Good. Matt, you better hustle back out here, man, and grab your mic. Thanks. That's our resident finishing expert. Here we go. That's just for Mark. <laughs> I can't hear it. Is I'm guessing that's like a Benny that's Hill. That's Benny Hill. Yeah. <laughs> Britain's finest. Mark, please walk market. very quickly. Walk very quickly. <laughs> I was Benny Hill was Great Brit one of Great Britain's <laughs> finest cultural gifts to the world. I like how we're keeping it classy. Mark will today. never speak yeah, to we me. Keep it classy. <laughs> When I was a kid, Benny Hill was the raciest thing you could find on TV, so we should have... And it was on PBS, out. which is ridiculous. We would have private Benny Hill watching parties. Uh, it, anyway. This is probably getting too much Too personal? From you. Yes. Too personal? <laughs> right. Anyhow, all I right. I think we were just healthy, red-blooded boys. Well, um, that brings us to our next segment, which is all-time favorite tool of all time this week. Uh, and uh, Asa, Matt, what do you got? Who's first? Well, you're the guest of honor today, so you go first. I am the guest of honor. Yeah. Yes. Do you feel like you've been honored sufficiently during the course of the day? I would like for you to call me Dr. Kinney today. Okay. Uh, <gasps> we do right. get a lot of those letters. By the way, if you are not a medical doctor, how about leaving the doctor off of your uh, title? <laughs> Anybody with your PhDs, please? Are that would oh, be great. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank so. goodness you do not uh, use the walk around using the doctor, even though you are a PhD. You, we, yes. you are one. Are you our one PhD on staff? That's correct. Yeah. 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 Interesting. I mean, it should be obvious, right, that I'm the only one. Matt, what? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't have had to ask. Boring. <laughs> Matt. All uh, right. Matt, I was going to say that Matt was a philosophy professor, so we'll often go over there with questions about. Existence. I wish you and... could just shut your big yapper. Yeah, <laughs> all right, all right. moving on. <laughs> moving moving on. on. <laughs> all right, so my favorite tool of the week ever this week is this tape measure. It's made by a company called FastCap, and it's called a flat back tape measure. And what's cool about it is that uh, it's like your normal tape measure, and that it's uh, you know pulls out of a, a, a wound up bit. Is that but how a tape measure works? It is. It's yeah. yeah the technical engineering term is it Great. pulls out of the wound up bit, but it's floppy, uh, and it'll actually lay flat on top of your workpiece instead of having that little rigid semicircular shape that most yeah. tapes have. And what's nice about it is that because it lays flat, you don't have to lean the tape over to mark your workpiece so accurately. I, yeah, yeah, I find that my my markings are far more accurate this way. And the other thing that it's great, and the original reason I bought it, is that it makes it easy to measure curves. Oh, yeah. Because it flexes, it, it you know, lays flat right around the curve. Right. What's the, tell everyone the manufacturer and the name. 
It's uh, it's FastCap is the company that makes it and sells so it. So it's FastCapOneWord.com. Yeah, and it's called then, the Flatback. It's called the Flatback, and mm-hmm. they have a series of tapes. They're all called the Pro Carpenter, and mm-hmm. this is the one called the Flatback. And you actually want to check when you buy it. There's I think there's two different ways that the tape itself is marked. Yeah, I learned that lesson. Right. Mine has the markings almost all the way across the width of the tape. And the one that uh, Ed bought, uh, his markings only go partway across. And then there's a blank spot where you can write and like keep a story pole. But that seems to be a bit useless unless you're maybe putting in uh, I suppose cabinets. if you're putting in a lot of kitchen cabinets, those story sticks are great. I could see using a story, having a story stick side just to transfer measurements. So often when you building furniture, um, you build the carcass and then you start fitting parts to that case rather than slavishly following fine woodworking set of instructions. You need to fit parts as you go. So I could see you transferring measurements that way, but you've found really you like the markings on both edges. You'd rather have the markings on both edges? Yeah, this doesn't actually have markings on both edges, but it has it far enough across Okay. uh, and that it, it, it works great. And I should say there's but wait, there's more. <laughs> because Set it and forget it. Uh, this tape measure only cost 8 or $9. Wow. Which, uh, they're super high quality. They work great. And they're less expensive than any of the tape measures you'll find at, like, uh, the, the home centers yeah. or somewhere like that. So a regular carpenter's tape measure is curved because they want that standout feature. They want to reach for things. They right. call it standout. They want to be able to reach for something that's far away and have the tape measure flop over. But as a woodworker, that's not as important. It's totally unnecessary, and this thing is the ultimate woodworker's measuring tape. Uh, all right, I've heard enough. Yes. Well, my favorite tool of all time this week is... This Oneida Dust Deputy. I'm going to roll it onto the camera for those of you who are watching the video feed. Um, really, Aisley? <laughs> this is you brought it in a vacuum. mundane <laughs> and boring, but it's actually great because who wants to... Two bad things happen if you don't have a dust separator on your shop back. Um, one is that your filter clogs up. Um, it, well, there's a bunch of things. Your filter clogs, and that kills airflow. And you don't even realize it, but your shop back's working at about a quarter of capacity. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's not sucking. You really want this to suck. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the other thing is that the bin fills up all the time. So you're always emptying the bin. I guess that's kind of a wash because you still got to empty the bin on the, on the uh, separator. But it's more of the clogging thing, I guess. Um, it's amazing. So just for the folks watching this on video, because all the big chips and dust are separated out in this little mini cyclone, Rockler also makes a good dust separator as well. Um, because they're separated out by this pre-stage, um, it's a lot like a cyclone, a mini cyclone. Um, what happens is the filter never gets clogged. I've had this filter in for about a year, and those of you watching on video, this is a HEPA filter. That's another tip. You should change out your stock filter for one that's HEPA-rated. This is a HEPA filter, so it's the finest on the market, and it's not clogged at all, and there's hardly anything in the canister. You can see hardly anything has even reached that filter. It's amazing. So what's great is that I don't have to do that dusty job of banging it on the trash Mm -hmm. can and having dust fly up in your face, all that. That's over, and um, the suction is so high. Now, granted, you have this other... uh, 
thing, that this other appendage, this weird little dog you have to drag around with you wherever your shop back goes. But uh, I did a blog that people can find if they want about making a simple little plywood cart. Oh, you um, got a little shop caddy. A little shop caddy. Uh, and a little plug for my own blog about this little caddy you can make. I took the wheels off my, you know, $80 or $70 garden variety shop back and I put them onto plywood and uh, my story has grown tiresome. I have one of those desktop PDs in my shop too. They work great. They're awesome. Well worth the. Uh, the I'm sorry, I'm having so much fun with these sound drops. Yeah, I'm, thankfully I can't really hear them, so I'm not as insulted as oh, I would be. Okay. Um, all right. Well, rock on. Uh, let's. You want to go to another question? That was a good transition. Is that going to be your transition? That's rock on. I, I when you maybe run out it of will. To say. I, I, I do. I do need a transition, although I don't know that it'll be rock on. But you do. Uh, there's a lot of things people say to buy time, like at the end of the day, and uh, yes, yeah. I think you should just say, stop talking, let's move on. Yeah, or stop just, talking now. Yeah. Um, let's take a Why question. don't you shut your yappers? Uh, okay, all right. The next question uh, comes from John Mihalik, and he wrote in about box building. He built Doug Stowe's jig for cutting spline grooves into mitered box sides, and it works great. And now he wants to try dovetail splines, and he knows how to build the jig and get it to work for cutting the, the actual grooves but he wants to know how to make the splines. He finds cutting them on the table saw to be a real challenge. So this is that thing where you have a little 45 degree in each direction, creates a kind of a 90 degree cradle that holds your, that was a roundabout way of saying it, holds your box at 45 degrees to the saw table, runs against your rip fence, right. and lets you cut out saw curves out of the corners of your boxes, and then you can make little on splines. On the router table. He's made, uh, at least Doug does it on this, the router table. But yeah. the basic jig I just wanted to tell everyone oh, is yeah. the one that goes on the table saw, and you cut little curves out, and then you can stuff those with little splines, trim them off, and it makes a pretty, this, a pretty little box. This guy wants to up the ante and know how to do the same jig on the router table. Right, so the... the the jig to cut the slots, as he said, he already figured with, out. With the dovetail keys. With the dovetail keys. So you just make the same jig. You register it against the, the router table fence, and you just push it through the router bit, and it cuts a dovetailed-shaped slot through mm -hmm. the corner. Yeah. So he says he knows how to do that, and he's asking, how do I cut the keys to fit them in there? Right. And I would say do it with the same router bit at the router table. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of it's going to be a lot like making a sliding dovetail on the end of a board and I think I can draw this up here. Yeah, this is that classic technique while Matt draws. This is that classic technique of you don't want to work on tiny work pieces. This is the same as when you make a molding. You want to mold the edge of a big board. And then you want rip to cut it off. this dovetail key in the edge of a big board that's going to dampen vibration and be easy to hold on to and give you a handle to keep your hands away from the bit and the blade. And then rip off the strip. That's the principle, right? Yeah, so the basic setup is you're going to have your, your router table and your fence, and then the bit is going to be buried halfway into the fence. Mm -hmm. And you're going to stand your board up. Uh, it will depends on whether you want in-grain showing or edge-grain showing, how mm -hmm. you send it through the bit. But let's say you're going to... Um, Probably just long grain. Probably yes. just, you know... So if you want long grain showing, you would run it through on its end... And then, the, oh, I see. and then the key. Well, no matter no matter how you slice it, you're going to be cutting through that key yeah, at an angle. True. So yeah. it probably doesn't matter. I would just run the board on edge. So you're going to send the board on edge through the router table, and that's going to cut out 
one half of the dovetailed key, then you flip it around and send it back through, and mm -hmm. when you send it through the second time, mm -hmm. you're gonna end up with a dovetailed key on the bottom. And leave, leave a little bit of wood there so it doesn't go flying. Oh, yes, exactly. And, and yeah. you can just test fit, you don't have to have it centered on this board or anything, so no. you can just test fit it in your slots and keep moving the fence on that final side until you have a nice fit. And, and then, then it's a lot of trial and error with scraps. No, 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 you can do it, it right on you your can, main, yeah, main you can, piece of wood. You can okay. do it on your main, yeah. and then just take it over to the table saw, or I would do it at the band saw, but... Uh, Rip off that strip. Cut off this piece here, mm -hmm. and then glue that into the slot. Yep. And I think that's probably the, the... The good thing about doing it that way is that since you use this dovetail bit to make the slot, you're guaranteed that the angle on the key that's gonna go into right. it is exactly the same, and you don't have to worry about that. And you want the key a little taller than the slot. It's gonna stick out. You're gonna have extra mm -hmm. anyway on length and height and everything, and that's all gonna get trimmed off and block plane down and sanded, and it's gonna look awesome. All right. Perhaps. Or you can be a real man and dovetail the box for real, for real. Honestly, I don't, I wouldn't, I hate this look on boxes. You don't like it? No, I don't. Oh. Well, a lot of people like Not it. A lot of people do, If yeah. you have to make a lot of boxes, it's much, much easier than sitting there and cutting dovetails. And, you know, woodworkers get really precious about, that's not a real dovetail. But the truth is, you give that out as a gift, and the rest of the world doesn't know that. They think it's amazing and wonderful. So, you, and you would be on the side of the company <laughs> manufacturing Soylent Green, because we don't know it's human, so what difference does it make? That's great. You've, you've really turned me into a bad guy. <laughs> All right. That's fine. Next question? All right. Uh, now that... Uh, now that Matt's turned you into a cannibal, uh, yeah. Jim Mitchell wrote in to ask... Isn't that where he stands up and says, Soylent Green is people? He's people. Is yes. people. Yeah. yeah. That's Chuck, all I remember. Chuck Heston. What the, the less remembered line is that immediately after he says, and also delicious. <laughs> right, <laughs> yes. yeah. People forget that. Right. Um, Jim Mitchell wrote in to ask, how to set the tension of a 10-inch bandsaw blade when the saw doesn't have a tension gauge? What gives? Well, we just had... You just got a, that, that question was just answered for our Q&A department, and yeah. I think Michael Fortune, who's our current bandsaw guru, guru, gave a pretty simple answer to that. Yes. What did he if say? If I understand correctly, the guy's, what he's missing is the gauge that tells you how much tension is on it, yeah. and not the actual mechanism that puts the tension on it. No, I think... No, right. I, well, I'm guessing that's what he's saying. Yeah, I mean, you have that. a gauge on the back of your saw in a lot of mm -hmm. cases, but those are notoriously... Unreliable. Unreli yeah, so one thing is, is that Michael Fortune, who is a bandsaw wizard, uh, that you don't want to over-tension the blade. Okay, so now one, you're stealing my thunder because oh, I'm going to talk about that. Oh, okay. You're just going to tell the tip, the tip about how to set the tension. Uh, that just went down a pay so grade. <laughs> exactly. The tip is, and I hope I remember this correctly, or Michael, who I see next week, will fry me. Um, you want to tension it to the point where when you push it, you just start to get a little bit of whiteness on your fingertip, like the blood's mm -hmm. being you, pushed you out. You take your index finger and you push along the side of the bandsaw yeah, blade. The side of the blade. Just enough pressure to make the tip of your finger blanch. Yes, yes. Now, here's the even more important point that I didn't want Matt to say because I wanted to save it all for myself, which is what Michael Fortune has taught all of us about using our bandsaws is that people are way over-tensioning their blades. So where this whole tension mania comes from is this idea that you have to tension the holy hell out of your blade in order to get it, to stop it from flexing sideways and barreling, people call it, 
And the reason that, and I've seen this work in my shop and you've seen it work in yours as well, Michael Fortune was the first guy I know of who was smart enough to realize why that was happening. So uh, what was happening is people have the traditional guidelines for bandsaw blades, the, gut, the, tooth, the teeth per inch is way too few. People actually... Um, way too many. Way too many, yeah, teeth, teeth per, per inch. inch. Exactly. The gullets were way too small. So when you're sawing, like resawing a board... Those things pack with chips, those tiny gullets pack with chips, and then the blade can't cut anymore because it can't clear its own chips. And then there's tr you're pushing harder, and then the blade wants to barrel sideways, and you get a crappy cut, and then people say, I know the solution. I'll put NASA-level tension on my bandsaw blade, you know, aeronautical you know, uh, tension on this bandsaw blade, and ask my little 14-inch bandsaw and, to handle that. And... Uh, Thinking that that will keep it from bowing. Which it will, which it will help. Um, but, but it also wears out your tires. It grooves your tires. Mm -hmm. Instead of letting your bandsaw tires do what they're supposed to do, um, which is to keep that nice little crown on top, have the blade riding the top of the crown. Then, by the way, it's a whole other discussion. You don't have to adjust for drift. Mm -hmm. you got to read Michael Fortune's articles. That's a whole other kind of baloney thing that people are getting caught up in is that they don't understand, because they have so much tension in their bands, they can't predict the, which way the blade is sort of facing. They're getting all this drift, or they're using dull bandsaw blades and getting drift. Mm -hmm. Anyway, keep a sharp bandsaw blade on there. At least three, uh, three teeth per inch is great for most work. You get nice big gullets that way, and you'll clear chips. You'll be amazed. You don't need that much tension on your right. bandsaw blade, and then you won't have to untension it all the time, which people do. They're just creating all these problems for themselves when really it's mostly about having fewer teeth per inch. You really only need one tooth at a time engaged in the work. So calm down on the tension, everybody, and yes. uh, use new blades. When your blade starts to get dull, also replace it or get That's it resharpened. something that I've learned uh, since I've bought a bandsaw was that what solves 90% of your bandsaw problems is a new blade, yeah. a sharp blade. All right. I can see Ed reaching for the sound effects sometimes, and then I tell myself, you know be interesting, coming. be interesting, and sometimes <laughs> you can get him to back off the sound effect. <laughs> um, well, I was just actually going to introduce our, our last segment uh, okay. for the afternoon, and uh, that's called Smooth Moves. What would you do with a brain if you had one? And this is where uh, you guys basically tell me all about the stupid moves you've made in oh your shops God, this the, is in super, the past week. This one's really embarrassing, and I was actually thinking about this overnight, kind of like, do I really want to bring this out into the open? But I'll start this one off. Um, like I'm that. making, oh, man, I'm making these Tansu, and for those of you watching the video feed, you'll see this. I'm making these, I'm going to fall over first. <laughs> I'm making these Tansu cabinets. Um, which are just a Japanese version of a cabinet that's sort of, it's, it may be even a Japanese word for cabinet, but tansu are just stackable modular cabinets. And we found this really beautiful broad white pine that, that a bunch of us at the magazine got for cheap. So we were all thinking of things to make out of it. So I was thinking I would make some tansu cabinets. And I'm using these big broad finger joints. Um, and I had a cool technique for doing these finger joints. Um, and it was working great. No, more wood. Clonk. Are you going to build a building for yeah. us? I've got four of these. I'm making four chests of drawers. Uh, some of them have doors in them, sliding doors as well, all at once. So it's a major project with all kinds of joinery you can see and all of that. So um, some of the 
Every joint in all four of the cabinets went well, but at one point I must have cut on the wrong side of the line, and I'm not sure which one it is. But uh, see, that one goes in pretty good. Um, oh, no, there's a little... Little tiny bit of a gap, but that one's <laughs> close enough. <laughs> but here's the scream moment. If that thing starts to fall over, just uh, grab it. Um, but then all of a sudden I noticed that I had a completely, you know what, I think I put the wrong one on the wrong side. But anyway, I noticed that I had a completely, I'd cut on the wrong side of the line and I had a completely like missing tooth, a whole blade curve difference between one of my fingers. That was a nightmare. <laughs> but then on top of that, the same workpiece that I screwed up when I was cutting the rabbits for the back, I also rabbited the wrong edge of one of these big, nice, the rabbits for the back. You oh. can see I rabbited the other night working late at night. Yeah. which is always a recipe for problems. I've got young kids, so I end up out in the shop. You do too, right? That's right, yeah. Ah, oh, man, and I, even, and I rabbited the wrong edge, so now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to salvage. This is one, of, I don't have that much wide, this wide stock. I'm going to salvage this one and rip a strip off and turn around and glue a new strip on. I'm going to salvage this board because there's too much work in it. I'm going to try to anyway. That's another recipe for disaster is trying to salvage the board that you screwed up, but, you know, you have to do it as a woodworker. Yeah, time. one yeah. of the... Uh, Best things I've learned since I've been at the magazine, our art editor, one of our art editors, Kelly Dutton, told me this. He said, sometimes uh, the cure is worse than the problem. Yes, exactly. Diminishing returns. This, let's title this episode Diminishing Returns. I like it. So the, the other thing I wanted to point out, because I know people are going to comment and say, well, if you had layout marks on there, then you wouldn't have rabbited the wrong edge. That's the voice of people who criticize me. Um, <laughs> I just want to point out that I had an arrow that pointed to the front edge of the case, the reference edge, and I disregarded that and rabbited right along that edge. Awesome. Oh, my God. I don't even understand what happened. I just noticed it yesterday, nah. and that's my smooth move, two smooth moves for the week. Mm. Dr. Um, Kenny? Yeah. Uh, so my smooth Fake move... Fake Dr. Kenny, sorry. Uh, my smooth move involves blood. Excellent. Uh, yeah, this uh, just happened just a couple of weeks ago, actually. I was um, in my shop, and I made this uh, wall cabinet from ash and apple. And they're very small, tiny drawers, uh, which I think illustrates, in fact, I don't always make tiny boxes. Sometimes I make tiny wall cabinets. And... Uh, I was cleaning the glue out of the drawer bottom groove in one of the boxes, and I was holding uh, in one of the drawer sides, and I was holding the drawer in my hand, in my left hand, and I had a chisel going into the drawer side, into that groove to get the glue out from where the back uh, went into the side. And um, uh, I was using quite a bit of force, I guess, <laughs> and the chisel slipped and actually split the drawer side down along the grain towards the front went of the drawer. Went right through. Went right through it and right into uh, my hand just What would you do with the brain if you had one? Yes. <laughs> good thing your chisels aren't sharp and it didn't cut you Yeah, I was in fact not using my good chisels to do that. I was using my... <laughs> Is that uh, right? Right. I was using my old crappy chisels, uh, my, uh, my old... Uh, Marples. But it still went right into your hand. Right into Maybe my not hands. as far so, as it would have. Not as far, yeah. And so uh, Ed's telling me to wrap it up. So, You're not supposed to say when I'm giving you the signal, just FYI. Uh, <laughs> you know, okay. This little production cool producer effect. Yeah, I get to do all these cool you know, hand gestures yeah, from back wrap, behind yeah. the camera. But 
I yeah, I don't know. Calling for a waiter. <laughs> I want to just say on the record, I don't appreciate some of the hand gestures he's been making during <laughs> yeah. the show. Uh, so I cut right into my hand. Uh, fortunately, it didn't need stitches, uh, but I am going to have a little nasty scar. Um, can, I I should... I be, can I be that jerky guy who comes in with the I told you so? Yes. The I told you so part is someone once told me that, and I violated this rule myself many times. Don't put a bleedable, anything bleedable, which is not really the, you know, don't put a part of your body ahead of any sharp yes. edge just in case the unthinkable happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, usually when I'm doing something like this, I'll use my saw hook right. as a stop to, to pair against or whatever. Right. Uh, but it, it made it a little bit hard to get that chisel in there, but I wouldn't do the same thing again. Yeah. So for a couple of that years. That pretty much wraps it up. For today, am I That's right? It? So uh, we want you to uh, check us out on iTunes, and if you really want to see the video feed and sit at your computer and watch us on video, it's slightly interesting at times. But really, we think most of you will enjoy this as a podcast. Um, we'll have lots of different guests on, different editors. When we have uh, authors in town, we'll invite them on the show and give us comments on how we can improve the show um, uh, and, and tell us that whether you think uh, we're really not funny and please just stop trying. Or I hope we're not trying. Ace has really only got a radio face. Yes. Yeah, face. This is definitely a face made for radio. All right. No doubt. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com. We'll reconvene in two weeks on April 13th for our regularly scheduled live stream broadcast. You can catch the archived versions of the live stream at finewoodworking.com slash blogs or the podcast via iTunes. Now go out, get back in your shop, and make some wood dust. But don't get hurt. But don't stab yourself in the head. <laughs>